Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We've got a great guest all the way from Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to the show, Billy Brown. Victor, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Now, Billy, we've known each other a number of years and we've developed a great friendship. You're a mortgage broker in the Nashville market, but you're more than a broker. You're an investor. You're active in all kinds of different projects. Before we dive into today's discussion, maybe give a little bit of your background and how you got to this point in your journey. Yeah, it's been quite a journey as most investors do. Yeah, I was a residential lender and then went out on my own and to, to have my own commercial lending company back in 2019 to offer more options to investors. And also, you know, investor myself, we syndicated an apartment complex, we've done an office complex, and now we've got this thing called the Golf Sanctuary. The little passion projects that you have, you always inspire me as well as the other people in our little world to go out and just take a swing at something I've always been passionate about. So that's our side thing. And we also do, I see commercial lending as well as, you know, a little bit of private money lending and all sorts of fun things. I like to say like we're a lender that makes you money because we are investors and can go reverse engineer what the need is for the lending and then go, go find it. You have an atypical career path into this world. You started out in the world of pro golf. Yes. Uh, hence the golf sanctuary project. Correct. Yes. Yeah. I failed miserably. So I have a lot of great stories and an empty bank account from that. <laughs> well, but you know, that's part of the journey. And I'm sure that you've brought with you a lot of the lessons from that into this world. It's one of those things that's painful going through, but looking back, you go and it's really your, your life is about experiences, not about money. And as painful as those things were, the ups and downs and all that, that journey has made me who I am and has been able to attract all sorts of cool people and be able to take those past experiences and apply them to, to businesses and, and um, really succeed. It's, it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that you and I are both well connected on is this notion of paying attention to the messages that the market is delivering to you. And I know you've got some thoughts around the kind of strategies investors should be undertaking today, especially in today's environment. We've had a significant run up in prices. What should investors be focused on today? I mean, on the on the lending market, the debt market tells you everything. Because there's a, a, a I call it a daisy chain, assembly line of of how money is packaged and off to the the end buyer. And that cycle, there's what you got paid attention to back in 2008, and even you know 2019 when the everything got shut down. Those capital markets in New York City stopped buying the paper, which caused a ripple effect throughout. Even down in the bank lending, no one wanted to lend money because they didn't know what's going to happen. Now reverse that, there's a tsunami of money. There's more money than there is since, in my opinion, out there to be able to go deployed, which is along with more demand out there for housing has caused prices to inflate, I'd say overinflate. And hence you have this giant bubble of equity. Now, is it a good bubble? It's a bad bubble? That's up to you. But the, what goes up goes down. And what we talk about with our investors, specifically in the residential one to four world, is you don't have control over your neighbor. If you're an apartment, you can kind of control the net operating income of that project, which determines the value of the property, not residential one to four. And if you look at where most people have investment properties, it's where the lower income people have bought if FHA, USDA, and all that, who are the most susceptible to getting behind in poor economic times. And we're starting to see those 90, 120, 180 day lates show up on the screen within those debt structures. So we've just gone through a year where 
We've had forbearance agreements. Many of those are going to come to a close in Q3, certainly by Q4 this year. Moratorium on evictions terminating in a number of states this month in June, almost half of the states in the United States. Those are going to be disappearing, certainly by September, those various moratorium on evictions and moratorium on foreclosures. So what's your sense? Are we going to see a wave of foreclosures? Or as some people have said, there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines waiting to scoop things up. Will there, in fact, be any bargains to be had? That's the question. Right now, there's so much demand and so much idle money out there for these JAWS funds and all that that are just ready to go deploy when there's blood in the water. But then the opposite side, he goes, well, well, Billy, I mean, there's plenty of people looking out there for housing and there are people like these places are getting overbid and people looking to go houses. Like, even if there's a you know foreclosure tsunami coming out there, there's plenty of people to go buy. Yes. But what about the debt side? It kind of figures that out. Like, there's supply and demand on both what people want and what's left out there. But if no one's lending money because they're scared to death or rates have climbed and you bid this thing up to here and you can only afford down here which is maybe 10% less than that because of the increased price of debt because of, well, there's a lot of money out there, then what are you going to go do? Not that I'm a commercial lender and like just an absolute negative all the time, but we got to look through the lens of like, what happens if rates increase? There is a more of a lag in the economy. I mean, the Fed's printing a lot of money there. Is it going to kickstart it and keep going? Or is it going to not take off as much as we think? If it doesn't take off as much as we think with people going back to work and producing and getting back to normal, then there's going to be some pain out there. And I think that uh, people need to pay attention to it. And that's why we're, we've been talking about this for a while going, you've got a lot of equity out there in those properties. Things are costing more, including rent. So your rent can justify paying a higher mortgage rate and harvesting that equity now, protecting it specifically through non-recourse lending. And now if, if there is a pullback in valuations, you're protected because you've already locked in your equity. And now you have a bunch of money sitting on the sideline to go do whatever you want to with it. Yeah, there's really a couple of risks there. I mean, you're talking about increasing leverage, equity harvesting, taking some of your chips off the table so that you're cash rich rather than cash poor, even if you're taking on additional leverage. At what point would you consider leverage still to be responsible leverage versus a house of cards? That's a great thing. I say this a lot. is like the lender's your friend. The lender is not going to let you overextend. They're going to go up to what the property will debt service at now. And all every lender has their own little versions of how they calculate debt servicing, but they're not going to let you overextend your skis. So 70, 75% leverage is, is pretty good. They're not going to pull out 100%. There's also, they, they feel like there's more upside there. As soon as they feel like there's more downside where inflation or the prices are going down, they're going to start pulling back their, their leverage points and increasing rates. So that's how they slow things down. So the lender is going to make sure that based on your income from the property and expenses, you can cover a safe amount of debt and then have margin. And usually 20, 25, 30% in case there's a pullback or a vacancy or anything like that. But also the non-recourse part of it too is, you know, everyone says, hey, we pay our bills. We're outstanding citizens. We're going to pay our bills. I don't really care about non-recourse. Well, that's fine. But non-recourse means that if things go bad, they're not coming after you personally. So it's more about asset protection than it is about being an outstanding citizen. It also allows you to go borrow more money because those lenders, those other lenders are going to go to see that you personally guarantee all these other loans, specifically the Fannie Freddie's and all that, all those mortgages and, and bank loans. You, even if it's a through an, an entity, you're personally guaranteed those. They're going to limit how much more money you could borrow. And when there's deals on the table, 
you need lenders to go leverage and, and some cash. So it's a question of looking at not just your leverage ratio, it's the structure. If I think back to the post-2008 era, there were many commercial borrowers that had made every single loan payment, but then they happened to be at an inconvenient time for that loan to come up for renewal. The lender looked at it and said, oh, Mr. Borrower, you're upside down. Bring us an extra half million in equity to get the ratios where we want them to be. Those were called maturity defaults. And they had made every single payment, but they were upside down and the renewal came just at an inconvenient time. Yeah, that's what I was we, we had to monitor. We actually talked to borrowers and again, those are listening on us to go. It's like, how long are you going to go own these properties? If you're planning on disposing of them, trading them out, sell them, whatever, you know, you're not going to put that into the structure. But if you're going to hold on these things for five or 10 years, then you make the appropriate loan length there. You can go five, 10, even 30 years now and, and to lock those in. So you can look at where we're at. I mean, I knew where we're at in the cycle. I'd be playing games on Wall Street, but gut tells me we're towards the top and there's going to be a downside. And how long is that downside going to last? I mean, you know, Bert, I do. Like what's, how long they usually last? It's usually a couple of years. So you want to probably lock in seven or 10 years on your, on your loan. Well, we're all here playing amateur economists to some extent, and we're trying to figure out the net result of all these headwinds and tailwinds that are taking place in the marketplace. We know that there's been an exodus from some markets. Like you said, there's tremendous pent-up demand, active demand for a new product. And we've gone through a time period through the pandemic where immigration has been largely turned off. I mean, that's the case certainly in the U.S., certainly in Canada. Many countries, travel's been restricted significantly. So once that immigration turns on again, now that's even more demand. So if you go to these communities that are already full, and you start to bring in immigration, where do they go? It's not obvious. It's not. No one knows where to go. I mean, Nashville is... Nashville's full. Nashville's full. <laughs> People, don't come to Nashville. We're full. So <laughs> yeah, go to Texas. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, the stuff that's just selling over here because there's so much demand, even the small little ranch style houses that were $200,000 a couple of years ago or twice that much now because there's no more product and they can't get product out of the ground fast enough. All the landlords have had these properties for 10 or 15 years ago. And well, I'm going to go take my equity in the form of a cashing out and go sell to somebody and redeploy it someplace else. Usually go in like a Clarksville or Chattanooga or Knoxville or Huntsville, one of the villas to do that, which frees up a little bit more inventory for all these new home buyers and potential other, other renters. But you're right. There's no pool of like rental property here. That's like coming on board. That's decent. There's a lot of crap out there, which is sad, but. Where are they going to go? It's going to be 30, 45 minutes out. That's about it. Well, that actually creates an opportunity because if you think about it, if there's such a run-up in value, refreshing a lot of the existing housing stock creates an opportunity for the flippers, the folks that are out there doing these buy, fix, and sell transactions. That's a tremendous opportunity for them because they can, as long as they can buy right at a reasonable price, add those improvements, now you can refresh some of that existing housing stock and bring it up to current standards and make a little bit of money along the way. And you've improved things for the community. That's the great thing about real estate investors. You know, they're, for those that are listening that understand how real estate investing works, I mean, you're providing high quality housing for folks. They're not trying to be pirates and steal money from poor people. It's they're literally taking these blighted houses and then making them prettier. And that's the cool thing is you see people doing their art and provide love to these families. 
now you're talking about affordable housing type of initiatives. And I know Amazon's got some billion dollar fund or $2 billion fund. They're focused on Nashville to be able to go solve that problem. Now, are they going to solve it? I don't know. But if you've got a couple billion dollars, you'll be able to either try to do something right or screw it up even more. I don't know, but hopefully, hopefully they'll, you know, they'll, they'll get lucky and, you know, find the solution, but you're right. There's a lot of demand out there. So great opportunities for investors. And you're like, well, if you're equity rich and cash poor and you see this opportunity, how are you going to go take advantage of this marketplace? Well, that's the key. And I love the phrase that you used earlier on equity harvesting to pull some of those chips off the table, put the cash in your bank account. So now you're sitting on a war chest ready to deploy for whatever reason. Maybe it's a war chest to protect yourself against future risks. Maybe it's taking advantage of an opportunity when it presents itself. Having extra cash is rarely a bad thing to have. That's true. As investors, we're told cash is trash. That's great, but there's also a time for it. As we saw uh, even in 2008 and even uh, a couple of years ago, the start of the pandemic, like it's not lazy money sitting there. I mean, cash is your Navy SEALs. They're ready there to, to rescue you when something happens. And if you're a real estate investor and hadn't had anything bad happen to you, wait, you're going to get hit. Everyone does. That's part of it. Those reserves and the structure of how you're doing your debt matter. And the little changes from recourse to non-recourse can really save you a lot of headaches and sleepless nights if you do it correctly. Absolutely. When I look at the problems that routinely happen in real estate projects and real estate investments, I know from my own personal perspective, the stress that I feel is strictly a function of the amount of cash in my bank account. It's not a function of the problem. I say, oh, that needs to be repaired. Okay, no big deal. We'll just solve it. When it becomes a stress point, it's like, ooh, where am I going to find the money for that? That's where the stress point comes up. Because at the end of the day, these kinds of problems, they appear all the time with amazing regularity. And the only thing that distinguishes a project that is successful from one that's in failure is what was your cash position? Were you able to handle it? That's really the only difference. That's it. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, you could teach a college course to investors on that right there. Is I mean, you're, there's no such thing as too much liquidity, no matter where the, the economy is. You sleep a lot better at night when you have that store of money over there just in case of emergencies. And if that is not accessible to you when you need it, you know, then, then that's when you lose sleep. A sale is a taxable event unless you're going to redeploy it using a 1031 or something like that, whereas a refi is not. And so just having that extra cash sitting on your balance sheet makes you appear stronger to lenders, makes you appear stronger to other investors, makes you feel stronger to yourself. It's amazing that little shift right there. And you can visualize this in your head, your personal financial statement of all your schedule real estate owned on page two, what that looks like. And all those loans you have personally guaranteed, either through an entity but or through Fannie Freddie or whatever. And now imagine this, taking that all over into a business in a legal structure where now that business is solely responsible for that debt. You as an individual own that company. So you get to claim not only cash flow, but also the asset, but all that liability is off your personal balance sheet. And then that cash is sitting there ready to deploy. You can go use it however you want to. And that's a great thing. It's like, well, what do I do with that money? Like, I don't have anything right now. Oh, wait, if I gave you half a million dollars right now, you can go find something that would make sense. I guarantee you could. I mean, there's plenty of opportunities out there. The fun one we just did, uh, we got a guy that built the right way 
a portfolio of the last 20, 25 years, and we were able to cash him out $1.8 million. And he grew up, let's just, I'm not going to say poor, but he was not rich. And he just is like, I, I asked him, like, what did you do when he first got that, that water came in there? He goes, I took a picture. And he's so humble. He goes, it's like, what are you going to do? Is I'm going to build great houses for people. That's what he does. Now he, now he can go do that without that fear. But $1.8 million tax-free. And you're like, that's, that's amazing. It's amazing a lifetime work. And what he can go multiply that with now because of the opportunities he has in front of him. It's unbelievable. So uh, we also, we got him a $10 million guidance line of credit to go build more houses too. So that always helps. You know, it, it makes a difference when you are able to undertake transactions, all cash. One of my business partners in one of our projects is currently building a 40 unit apartment building, all cash, no debt. And we're talking a concrete build, you know, concrete mid-rise with elevators. Wow. All cash. That's amazing. I mean, I hate to say it. My, my, my lender friends are the bus, but lenders are the bane of your existence most of the time. But uh, they can also protect you. But if you don't need them, don't use them. <laughs> it, it's, it's funny, especially the new construction and all that. I mean, a lot of lenders don't really, they kind of shy away from it. And they'll, they'll hold you accountable, which is great. They're very smart people with lots of knowledge and lots of experience. I'm not, you know, take, take this tongue in cheek. But they don't typically like that risky stuff. Now, once you get it built and stabilized, they really want to be your friend and go, go put that on their balance sheet. The new stuff they're a little hesitant on. So it's smarter your friend and one less stressor. You know, is the lender going to approve my loan? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Billy, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Easiest way, I'll give my personal email address, which is just simply billy at billybrown.me, as in Mary Edward. And then our company's website is theinvestorscapitalgroup.com. And we'll have a way to contact us there, see who we're at. If you're a real estate investor and no matter what your need for lending, I'd love to be able to connect with you and learn what you're doing and also see if we can help you out on the lending side. Well, Billy, love our conversations and thank you for the perspective and for the listeners at home. Definitely reach out to Billy at billy at billybrown.me or at theinvestorscapitalgroup.com. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. 